With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a whirl. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today's guest is Ganesh Swamy, the CEO and co-founder of Covalent. Covalent has raised about $15 million over three different fundraising rounds. The company is focused on building a index platform. So connecting to all different blockchains, allowing both analysts and developers, technical and non-technical people to access all the data of the blockchain world in a format that they're used to, Excel, Tableau, etc. They are on a rampage. They're doing great work. We talked about Ganesh's view on the world of decentralization, what it will take to make Bitcoin and blockchain uh, massively adopted across the world, what the blockers are in place. And we also touched on healthcare. Uh, Ganesh previously worked in uh, the drug manufacturing world. And we talked about the implications of healthcare, how healthcare insurance is structured. We talked about at the end there, how the decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs are structured, what the problems are in the world of DAOs and giving out grants to developers. So we cover all that and more. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here is Ganesh Swami. All right, Ganesh, I'm excited to be chatting with you. Um, you are working on a awesome project, Covalent, like we were saying a few minutes ago, Covalent Bonds. Is Maybe start there. Is the concept of the company paralleling the idea of a Covalent Bond? And my guess is the answer is yes, but I'd love to hear about the That's origin. That's exactly right. Mike, super happy to be here. So a little bit about myself. I, uh, I'm a physicist by training, used to work on cancer drugs for about half my career before pivoting to the data space. And uh, about five years ago, uh, there was a hackathon that I uh, attended and I built this middleware connector where you can pull out blockchain transactions using Excel. So anyone non-technical can use uh, tools that they're familiar with to understand and analyze and report on blockchain data. Ended up winning that hackathon and decided to start a company to commercialize this technology and bring it into the world. And so that project is covalent today. So the word comes from covalent bonds in chemistry, uh, just paying homage to my, uh, my previous life. And here we are connecting centralized and decentralized systems where that bond between databases and blockchains. So that's really where the uh, idea comes from. So even if you look at our logo, it's a bunch of orbitals and 
Maybe it's bringing back ha- harsh memories from high school chemistry. My apologies, but that's where the uh, story comes from. So today, uh, Covalent uh, bridges the Web 2 and the Web 3 world. So we're that bond. So that's the story. That's cool. What, what, what were you doing uh, for the first half? What were you doing specifically? Were you working on the, the data analysis side? of That's exactly right. Research? So most drugs today in yeah. the world that's uh, out in production or uh, that's available uh, have gone through multiple phases of clinical trials. So first they try it on mice, then they try it on other kinds of animals. And then finally there's like phase one, phase two, phase three. So it takes about 10 years to get a drug onto the market. So it's kind of a marvel that the COVID vaccines got out that fast, right? Uh, so it's it's definitely a feat. Was that just a decision? I mean, did they just say, hey, we're just going to decide to not? Uh, I, I can't really comment. I don't really know. A lot of these things are hush-hush. The uh, FDA yeah. is very opaque when it comes. To... <laughs> it's not good. Yeah, it's not good. I mean, that's Probably why uh, there are all these side effects. You know, uh, long COVID is a thing now. So I'm not I'm not really sure. Nobody really knows. So it's still mm-hmm. very early. But uh, mm-hmm. But the new paradigm of drug research or drug design is something known as in silico design, which is using computer simulations to understand if a drug would work and if the if the efficacy and the uh, uh, accuracy is correct. So I was working on uh, you know uh, computer based, computer aided drug design, which is very different from how drugs are built today. So they're all uh, in vivo, which means a wet lab, mm. uh, you know, organic, like in the terms of like real life kind of uh, drug testing which is very expensive and very slow. Computer simulations, you can just restart them, you can throw the results away, and it's a lot cheaper to whittle down the list of drug candidates. So that's what I was uh, working on. Wait, I'm so I'm I'm so curious about this. So the the computational power to predict what drugs would be effective, is that based on the genetic sequence or some uh, what would be the data so input? What we were specifically on? working on is uh, protein therapeutics. So essentially, uh, what we would do is take uh, a protein, understand how it misfolds. So things like sickle cell anemia is because of protein misfolding. And then go back there and figure out an equivalent uh, protein that exists in nature and then try to fix the pH of, try to fix the, the, the temperature resistance or how well it binds to the active site, how effective the, the, uh, activity is. Those are the kinds of things you would fix. Uh, but you would start even smaller. So a big business model for these newer pharmaceutical companies is to go to the big guys like Johnson Johnson and figure out drugs that have been shelved. So this is known as shelved IP because it's uh, failed like phase one or phase two trial. So there's still a lot of money that has been invested into that drug, but uh, there's not a lot of interest to take it, uh, to go back to the drawing board and fix it. So they outsource that to smaller companies who then fix problems with that shelf IP, and then they get a cut of the uh, royalties in the future. So that's how most of these uh, drugs, uh, at least smaller companies, that's how they are able to survive. Otherwise, it takes a lot of lot of money to hmm. take uh, build a drug from scratch. Hmm. And wh- what do you view of the uh, maybe from a macro perspective of the this approach, like taking the fifty thousand foot look and say, well, we've effectively synthesized 
the organic matter, maybe plants, combination of those, mushrooms, whatever organic organically goes into it. Rewinding the clock, it would be like a medicine man in a town or woman issues some combination of liquids, teas, elixirs, and then we synthesize those, understand the molecular structure, the interaction that that has with the body through research trials. Do you feel that this is a a path that will continue to bear fruit? Do you feel like there's a substantial missing component? I mean, it's in a way kind of a leading question, but I, I certainly see the the political debate on, on vaccines to be a, 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 a useful debate to have, but there seems to be more of a consensus in the failure of uh, drugs in areas like mental health. If you go to a psychiatrist, you're effectively taking a road to prescription drugs. And I think that that is, people are largely seeing that some pill is not just going to cure your conscious experience or your suffering internally. Do you have a perspective on, I mean, will 10 years from now, 20, 30 years from now, pharmaceutical companies just become even larger and somehow more, they just, it's a, is it a scientific problem? Is it a, you know, problem of, we just need more money and research, more scientists figuring these things out. Uh, I've, uh, I've given this a lot of thought and, uh, that's ultimately why I decided to quit the industry. Uh, and I, I would summarize the problems as twofold. One is that the, uh, the science is lacking. So simple things like how, uh, how hydrogen bonds work in chemistry is not something that's well understood. So everything that you learn in first year chemistry and in grad school is, uh, is not accurate in the sense that it's to the extent of what we know. So you cannot, for example, uh, do a computer simulation on the freezing of water into ice, that phase transition. It's just not possible today. So that's the holy grail if you were to solve that. So, uh, the science is lacking, and that has a bunch of factors. The hydrogen bond problem is just one one example, but protein folding this is a problem that's uh, people have been doing computer simulations with folding at home these big uh, clusters of computers uh, for over two decades, and we're making some headway, but still there are fundamental science questions that cannot be answered. And what ends up happening is that you parameterize the activity based on quantum computer simulations, and then you extrapolate those results into molecular dynamics or higher resolution. So that's really what the, the issue is. The second problem is the commercial uh, commercialization of these drugs. Uh, I think this is uh, straight up capitalism, and this is where you know capitalism is at odds at what's best for society. So uh, they are... Uh, diseases out there that we have drugs uh, that can work, but because there's a lack of market and you cannot make profits, uh, these drugs never get out into the market. So that is a very unfortunate uh, overall, almost like a negative step for society as a whole, because a, a commercial entity cannot uh, commercialize that intellectual property. So I'm, I think the world would be a lot healthier, a lot happier mm. if there were uh, 
if there was a way for profits or some kind of way to fund public goods in a way, right? These drugs, these pharmaceutical drugs have to be belong to all of humankind and not just to uh, some company and their balance sheet. So I think that's, uh, uh, it's, it w- just wasn't, you know, something that was, uh, was, uh, something I was comfortable with. And you could see guys like, uh, Martin Shirley, he's out now. So all of these guys coming in and profiting from pharmaceutical drugs. And, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's not, not ideologically pure, if you know what I'm saying. So, yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Ideologically pure is, is, uh, is long been lost. And it seems like I, I hear I, the first point you made on the scientific and maybe mathematical computational sophistication is not there yet to solve really key parts of the analytical modeling. And then the second point you made really is, uh, maybe capitalism or some, convolution of capitalism combined with government influence and a really skewed incentive financial policy for how drugs are paid for. It, you know, it's it's not as if I just go to a pharmacy and I buy it off the counter and the pharmacy benefits and the person who had drug benefits like it would at a retail shop. It's 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 crazy pipelines of money and through governments and approvals. And it's 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 unfortunate, but the reality of it makes sense because people had to as a society, we decided to, we, we recognize the importance of, we recognize effectively the power of drugs, of synthesized drugs. And that power can be misused and it can be, uh, you can sell something that you both, even if you have good intention, you know, somebody developed a drug at some project they're working on, they put it out there in the world, there's a negative health outcome for that. Then there's also people who deliberately do that. But collectively as a society, I think there was a lot of fear. And we said, hey, we need to regulate, we need to have government oversight and be incredibly thoughtful for how these things get released. The negative downstream effects of that is that there is a huge incentive if you do cross that hurdle and you do get the approval, but then you miss kind of that middle ground um, where maybe there's an effective drug that just can't get to market or a an entire category of illness or disease that doesn't get addressed because the financial incentive isn't there. I also feel that there's a massive ignorance or ignorance of the purely free and organic, non-patentable plants that are super and herbs that are super healing. And I think that that probably is intentionally uh, marketed as like uh, snake oil or, you know, the pharmaceutical companies do not want you to just grow your own <laughs> medicine or buy it from someone who's just growing it off a tree or a plant. So I, I think there's unfortunately that, um, that, uh, conflict of interest where there's, there hasn't been at least a way to take what nature provides and understand that deeply. And maybe that'll change. I'm optimistic, but I think it's, a really important and nuanced conversation because it's so important. It's the largest industry in the world. It's the biggest part of our GDP and it doesn't seem to be very effective. And my, my fear is that this is something, if people don't have these kind of conversations, it just drags down everyone else. It's like we pay 
18, 20% of our annual income in healthcare expenses. People are generally pretty unhealthy, both mentally and physically. And we don't know why. That's the, that's the thing. If there's no, if there's a clear direction you can go, or if there's a, a consensus on what the problem is, at least you can make it better. But that's my rant. I, <laughs> like you, I, I've thought a lot about it and it seems like something that is, that needs to get more attention than it does. I agree. Yeah. Uh, I, we have, so, uh, first payer healthcare here in Canada. I'm sitting in Canada and that comes with its own set of mm-hmm. problems. So it doesn't seem like there's a solution in sight or even the incentive to solve the problem. I think that's the, the bigger issue. Nobody is really even thinking about these mm-hmm. things and thinking about how to solve these problems. It's just happy with the status quo, which is very unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. And so you effectively built up the skill set of analyzing models, data models, and you maybe individually felt frustrated or the team wasn't able to make headway. But it it seemed like there just was a a lack of progress, which motivated you to maybe go to this hackathon, work on the side project, utilize the skill set you have in new areas. Crypto is blowing up, makes sense you go in this direction. How do you, how did you parse out or originally see, even through this hackathon, this problem, which from my understanding in a layman's terms would be, there's a a challenge of extracting the data that the blockchain creates and then making it useful for other people, like extract it, transform it, send it out. Was that how you were thinking about this the whole time? Did you just have that framework and then come into it and see it in that way? Uh, More or less, but there's still five years between quitting pharma and uh, the hackathon. Mm. So what I had done uh, uh, when I made that pivot in my career is uh, just move into big data systems. And the real insight that I brought into the hackathon is that for any new technology to be adopted, you have to reduce the cost of adoption. So these enterprises and businesses, they're not going to retrain their people. They're not going to retool their people. They're not going to re-engineer their processes. They're all, there's too much inertia. There's too much, uh, you know, invested in the, in, in the status quo and the existing processes. That's why in an enterprise setting, you always have some kind of system that's been chugging along for 20, 25 years. And there's no reason to change it because it just, just, just works. And a lot of our payroll systems, for example, they're all built in the eighties. Nothing has changed. And there's no reason to change that. Why change? Why try to fix something that's not broken? So what you need is you need new technologies and you need this bridging solution that regular people can adopt these new technologies without, uh, without, you know, the cost of throwing away their existing investments. So that's really the, the key idea. And so a manifestation of that, uh, that insight is this middleware, uh, technology where ultimately the end goal is that you can connect to the blockchain using Excel which everyone uh, loves. And, you know, there are billions of people who know how to use Excel and you use your familiar uh, language. It's like, it's like a translation engine. That's what it is. Right. So, uh, mm-hmm. so I wasn't really thinking about new greenfield use cases of crypto uh, just yet. I was just curious, intellectually curious uh, that if I built this, what would happen, right? If I, you know, index all of this data, and exposed it to Excel and Tableau and other tools that have, 
you know, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people uh, that people are comfortable with, tools people are comfortable with, what would happen? Just a uh, intellectual curiosity. Uh, I live in Vancouver. Vancouver is a very rainy place. And that particular weekend was an extremely rainy weekend. So uh, how else are you going to spend your weekend but go to a hackathon? So that's uh, that's how I ended up at that spot. And, and what what kind of, uh, thanks for that background, what kind of information are you pulling? Is it like all the transactions that are happening? So you have the addresses, the time of day, the amounts. Is this the kind of data that you said if we're available in Tableau Excel format that people would be able to do something with or did you have a different so this is back in 2017 one uh one beautiful thing about blockchains is that it's agnostic to the use case it's just uh it's like a generalized database and so back in 2017 the only valuable information that were on on blockchains like ethereum were the ico data so how many sales were there how many token holders there are who's holding the tokens who's selling the tokens that kind of information. There was no DeFi. There's no uh, Web3 was not a thing. There were no NFTs, uh, nothing of that. There was no GameFi. Uh, no, none of those things existed uh, back then. So the only things that were interesting were uh, ICOs. And uh, that's, you know, that's was interesting. And uh, I built this tool just to analyze ICOs. If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. Yeah, and uh, today you have is it integrate would you think of it as integrations with many different blockchains and then export availability for developers and maybe non-technical people to pull in these data sources into the tools they that's have. exactly right so the 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 overall premise has not changed in the last four years or so uh, it continues to be this middleware it continues to be this bridging solution that is familiar to web2 developers but what we've done is we've uh, done a couple of things. One is that uh, we built a, you know, it's a 
uh, a 60 person team that is now supporting uh, Covalent. So uh, we've grown a lot and we've had uh, a couple of other key ideas that uh, I don't think anyone else has, uh, has uh, explored in the industry. So the biggest thing we've done is we've unified all of this data. So one of the crazy things about blockchains, which at least all of us believe, is that in there's going to be hundreds of blockchains that are thriving. It's going to be a very vibrant ecosystem. So actually, the problem of pulling data from blockchains is going to be more difficult as these blockchains come to market. So you don't really know if it's like ETH 2.0 or or Harmony or Polygon or Avalanche or Near Protocol or there are hundreds of blockchains. So what we have done is we've unified all of that data. So we, we extract all the data, normalize all of the data and provide a, a one unified interface. So that way, a developer uh, doesn't need to know if the data is on Near or, or Polygon or Ethereum or Optimism or Arbitrum. They just have to do the integration once with Covalent and now they have access to all blockchain data across all block uh, across forty different chains that we support. Hmm. And what would be an incentive? Why Why would a developer want normalized data across all the? It's uh, it reduces the cost of integration. So these blockchains are there are nuances to how they store the data. So the data how the the way the data is stored on like Ethereum is very different from how the data is stored on something like Polygon very different from how it's stored from uh, in any other blockchain because they're all they're all like this book uh, consensus algorithm storage layers it's all very different and so the advantage here is that you just have to learn what the data shape and you know how it feels and looks on one blockchain and then all of the translation is further done uh, on by by covalent on your behalf so now you can pull assets and pull data from polygon and you don't have to, you don't have to rewrite your code. So it's almost like, uh, what would be the closest thing? Have you heard of Segment, yes. the company? Yeah, it kind of, the way you're describing it reminds me of that. They, in the Web2 world, they integrate with all these different, uh, data providers, companies, you know, it could be Facebook analytics or, or Google analytics or whatever. And then they pull that in into one aggregated that's exactly how covalent works so segment pulls from all of your SaaS tools from all, all all of your web properties and normalizes that and puts it into a data warehouse and then a data analyst can go in and query this data warehouse that's exactly what covalent does so we pull in all of the data from the different blockchains normalize that so create the same schema the same shape and format of the data and put it in a database and one way to extract the data is through the api Another way to use this data is just straight up SQL. So it's exactly like a uh, segment. Mm, that's interesting. And uh, what what's bigger now, the developer side of the business or the non-developer? Like uh, I imagine it would be analysts trying to pull this data in and figure out where the market trends are and trading opportunities. So our developer API and the developer ecosystem is a lot larger than our analyst ecosystem. And uh, I think some of it is from just battle scars from the previous bear market. So one challenge with building uh, software for uh, analysts and traders is that if there's any any kind of market correction, like a bear market, uh, those users, they leave the ecosystem. So in 2018, 
uh, we've always had an API. So we've always built a, a tool for developers. In sorry, in 2020, when uh, there was this day where Bitcoin dropped by, I think, 40% in a day. It's in March 16 is the exact date. It was Black Thursday. And so half of our competitors literally evaporated overnight because their user base just just left, just exited the system. So, uh, and those are all analyst tools, right? Not developer tools. So it was only the developer APIs that actually thrived and were able to survive that, that correction. Because for a developer, uh, you build an integration, it's very difficult for you to uh, rip out the integration or you just like the only way to churn is if you're going out of business. Unlike a trader where you could have a, a negative uh, P&L and you just get wiped out and you stop using the system. So that's uh, that's mm. part of the, the challenge. But we are building an analyst tool. I know there's a lot of analysts. I think the ecosystem is a lot bigger. If you see what's happening in the market correction right now, we seem to be in a bear market, but the NFT ecosystem hasn't really been affected, right? Because they're pricing it in ETH. In absolute US dollars, they're down. But in terms of ETH, they're not really down. So they're, you know, a, it's a completely different ecosystem. Do you think that's just a representation of the power of the USD to say, you know, to say that their the relative pricing for ETH hasn't changed, but now that people are paying less US dollar equivalent for, you know, some board ape, I, I think most people, most of the time, still translate the value of any currency into USD conceptually. I, uh, I'm not an energy NFT collector, so I, I cannot speak, uh, too much about this cohort of users, but I, my hunch is that, uh, this is a net new set of, uh, ecosystem players. They're very different from DeFi. So they don't really care about US dollars. They're just trading day in and day out in ETH and they haven't been impacted as much. So it's just, you know, how you, move from the U.S. to Canada and so it's in Canadian dollars and you don't really care what's happening to U.S. dollars anymore, right? Because you're just stuck in that little economy. So I think that's what's happening. So they they price it in Ethan and Seoul and that's it. So they're, you know, trading day in and day out and transacting and they don't seem to be affected as much yeah. outside. They actually lose their physical bodies and get absorbed into the metaverse. That's, that's <laughs> they just... <laughs> live on Twitter. <laughs> uh, which, what's your take? I mean, do you have a, a perspective on these chess pieces? If you look at like NFTs or uh, maybe the impact of uh, gaming on the blockchain or this idea of the metaverse. When I think of the metaverse, I think of there's different concepts, but I think of the meta created or facebook company created virtual reality capabilities and then the open platform on top of that are there other DeFi to name other things uh, is there directionality that you believe more strongly in than you think other people do or have a view on how these things in engage each other in the coming years yeah, absolutely. So, Mike, this is a great question, and uh, I, I have a full essay on this, but let me briefly Ooh. tell you uh, my thoughts, because I'm betting my company's future on blockchain systems to thrive, which means actual real-life use cases. The speculative uh, use cases that we see today is not enough to make us thrive, not for us to become a unicorn. That's definitely uh, a part of the challenge. So, 
I would say there's a couple of, uh, couple of parallel threads that are going to propel this market forward. Covalent is an indexing bet, right? It's an indexed bet. We're not, we're not a DeFi API. We're not an NFT API. We're not a GameFi API. We're not a security token API. We're a horizontal data platform. So it doesn't really matter what the use cases are, but there has to be a use case for us to accrue value. So I think the first uh, thesis I have is that the current crop of all of the users in GameFi and NFTs and, and DeFi is just the start. So this, I would uh, assume, is 92 or 93 in terms of the internet era. So we are now starting to speak to really, really large Web2 players who are starting to add Web3 experiences to their existing portfolios. So here, uh, I actually just spoke to a, a gaming company that has 200 million monthly active users. And the biggest game in GameFi today on the blockchain is DeFi Kingdoms that has 5,000 daily active users. So where's 5,000 and where's 200 million, right? So it's, uh, you're going to have more traction from these Web2 companies coming to Web3 than Web3 companies finding product market fit and really, really blowing up. So that's, uh, you know, I would say, uh, thesis number one that I strongly believe in. So this has a couple of like offshoots. So in the game gaming space, you're seeing AAA studios. So there's probably a hundred triple AAA uh, games coming out in the next two years. And if 10% of those, that's 10, uh, 10 AAA games add a Web3 experience, that's a pretty large uh, set of new users who are coming to Web3. Maybe they know um, the underlying stack, maybe they don't, but it doesn't really matter, right? It's uh, blockchains will become like database. Do you really care what database is behind your, uh, your, your blogging software? Not really. It's, it's, it just becomes transparent at some point. This also manifests itself into fintech and DeFi uh, merging. So this is bound to happen. And you're starting to see early signs of this. So Robinhood has now added a Web3 wallet. So they're, I think they're at 15 million uh, users. And all of those users now have access to uh, a Web3 wallet. And the sum total of all DeFi users is less than 2 million users. 2 million wallets have interacted with all of the DeFi protocols. So just one company with 15 million uh, wallets comes into the space and suddenly the, the space just explodes. So that's uh, my thesis number one, like Web2 and Web3 merging, FinTech and DeFi merging. So more mainstream adoption via the, uh, via the integration of Web2 protocols and Web3 protocols. Step number two, I think, is NFTs as a technology is super interesting. So what we see today is NFT as art, but I think that's uh, almost limiting in its in its nature. It's exciting, no question. It's exciting. This is the first time digitally native artists have a platform to express their craft. Right. Uh, thus far, it's always been an analog process uh, to express your art. So it's really compelling, and I think there is something here. But I think. NFTs as a medium of uh, business infrastructure is where uh, there's a lot of potential. So imagine your accounts receivable and accounts payable and invoices minted as NFTs. Now you can pool these NFTs. You can put it down into a money market. You can borrow against it as collateral. You can you can pledge it. You can do all kinds of things that is crazy about DeFi, like the the wrapping, the forking, uh, the the lending. That's a lot of excitement around NFTs as infrastructure. 
And suddenly what you, what I think the TAM there, the addressable market, is every business will have a digital asset on their balance sheet. It doesn't matter if they're they're DeFi or or crypto company or a blockchain company or web company. So I think that's super, super exciting. And uh, once we start to see uh, a couple of projects adopt this, suddenly the, the world will explode. So that's uh, that's what my, my thesis is. And then besides that, there's uh, uh, central bank digital currencies. So that's a pretty major thing. I think uh, in the next five years, we'll see uh, at least one or two uh, stable coins that are out uh, issued by the central bank. So probably not in Canada and the US. You know, we tend to be a little backwards, uh, maybe other countries out there. Uh, but you'll start to see all of these things are slowly and then suddenly. So that's, that's my, my thesis on, uh, you know, uh, in the next, next five years, what's going to happen. Mm. Yeah. I almost interpret what you just said beautifully there as, uh, the, the stage is set. There's a few people dancing in the room, but it, those people are early speculators. You know, they don't know for sure. They're just kind of betting here and there and they're, they're trading wins and losses. And then there's like, then there's like the popular, there's like the hot girl in the room and, and all her friends, like you want to invite her over and we're just waiting until this is kind of like uh, influx of reputable web two companies to the dance floor. And that might look like early on companies just holding Bitcoin on the balance sheet. It might look like a simple integration to a, a web three wallet or Bitcoin wallet. And I, I don't think, I, I think also to your point there, there will be much larger adoption when larger companies implement relatively simple features. I think there'll be a, there'll be a, a degree of buy-in or risk mitigation as perceived by the public when companies go, I mean, look at Facebook, right? Facebook rebranding to Meta saying we're dedicating ourselves to moving in this direction of Web3 and building out VR tools and clearly having a vision to integrate the blockchain and crypto technology. I think that that those are the I mean, that's a dramatic change. But I think those are the kind of signals that make it make the existential risks to the future of blockchain protocols and companies reduced. Like the the chances that the governments of, you know, Western countries at least ban or somehow severely limit the innovation potential of these technologies gets reduced when every large company integrates them. So I think what I see is people really pulling or inviting these Web2 companies hard into the space. And you and they have to have an on-ramp, you know, it has to make product sense for them. They move slow, but I I do think you're spot on by saying it's happening. And honestly, companies like yours are the bridge to get there. It's, you know, no one's going to really appreciate the work you do. Uh, This sounds cold, but when, you know, uh, companies see these, these bridgings from web two to web three, it takes a, it takes a lot of infrastructure to make that happen. Uh, and companies like Robinhood, Square, um, even Twitter, they're, they're not, when I think of the kind of classic web two companies, they're more cutting edge. Maybe, maybe I'll exclude Twitter there, but even they, they have an NFT kind of integration on the sideboard they released and, and seem to be clearly pushing in that direction. Many companies just kind of seem to be dabbling in it, you know, maybe publicly supporting it on a few blog posts. Uh, but I think the rubber meets the road and things change quick too. One thing I got from your point was, it, it, all it takes is like 
hey, here's a news article and you know, Google launches this huge product. Like these things do change quickly because there's a lot of work being done behind the scenes in companies. That's proprietary until they release it. Um, on the NFT specifically, do you feel like the use cases, because there is a lot of confusion as to how the technology can be implemented into real world. You gave the example of the invoicing for small businesses. So thinking of accounts receivable or money that companies are yet to receive, that those that is effectively not maybe fully realized uh, capital that they could leverage off of or take loans off of. Are there other scenarios where you see NFTs being really helpful, maybe early adoption cases in the, in the market? Yeah, I would say uh, credentials is another use case where uh, I don't think there's fully explored. So imagine something like LinkedIn. And now this is a, it's, it's a, it's a brand new kind of like use case that, uh, it's unimaginable what the real answer would be, right? This is a crypto native use case, but I imagine something like LinkedIn where your credentials and all of your experience is on chain via NFTs. That's non-transferable. Uh, that's the whole like soul, soul bound, uh, NFTs that's, uh, making the buzz terrible name, by the way, but, uh, it is what it is. Uh, and so. I think that's another big use case for NFTs. Like, you know, uh, like who is Mike? Mike has all of these, uh, accomplishments and they're all, uh, they all are provably verified by some system. And you can trace the lineage of this entire, uh, entire, uh, set of credentials that you have that makes you who you are. And then you can use that to rebuild essentially some of the, uh, fundamental pieces in society, for example, credit scores, right? Credit scores can pull in these, these kinds of things. Have you had a, a loan in one of these money markets that was liquidated? So that data is on the chain. So if you don't have that, then you can, you can get a higher credit score. So that's, uh, really just rebuilding and making everything transparent, uh, as opposed to the opaqueness that you see with these credit scoring companies. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I, I'm a big, believer in the dramatic improvement potential of the credit scoring uh, methodology, at least in the United States. Is it similar in Canada where there are centralized sort of oligopolies? It's exactly the same. Yeah. yeah. I, I even think it's the same companies. So oh, yeah, I really? think so. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That seems like I, I'm surprised. I've looked around and I, I don't know if there's any protocols or projects that have gotten significant traction on this. It's still early days because the user base is small, but there are definitely companies, uh, trying to do exactly this, like credentials and credit scores, all using NFTs as an underlying uh, infrastructure. Mm. Do you see a, uh, like, what do you see as future potential dramas? I mean, one of which you kind of sparked in me, which is, all right, if we have a centralized or a decentralized, uh, credit scoring, protocol, or if we have this, um, you know, small business inventory NFT program pr protocol, are, is there just going to be a lot of competition for protocol adoption and sort of, um, trying to get to, uh, uh mass market for these different applications, or do, do you see that happening? I mean, are protocols just in this phase of the next few years to a decade of just battling out for the different real world implementations? I, I think the adoption would be hidden 
in the sense that regular people will not move away from their zero in their QuickBooks. It's just the underlying uh, bits and atoms and bits are, are repurposed and re-engineered to use NFTs. So these small businesses won't even know that it's NFTs under the under the you know under the QuickBooks, and it just happens to be this new account in your list of accounts that you can take a loan against your future cash flow, right? But you don't really know that it's an NFT under under the hood. So that's what I that's what I think will happen, and uh, I mean at, at least that's what makes really uh, makes sense to me. It's logical sense to me. Yeah. I'm I'm also curious to ask you, um, one of the ways, the ways that's a popular structure for protocols is that they'll start a private company, maybe LLC or C-Corp, raise money, either funding that company directly, trading out equity, or do a pre-sale or trade the money they raise for tokens. And then they will, the, the, the core team will build out the protocol with their core objective to be getting adoption uh, driving up the price of the token, but really they also focus largely on developers building on top of these protocols. So oftentimes there'll be a foundation, they'll take off a percentage of what they raised or a percentage of the tokens that the private company holds, form a foundation. That foundation is effectively the governing body for the protocol. And a key part of what they do is deploy money or, or give grants out to developers to build on top of the protocols. I've Talk to a few different founders, and one of the things I've learned is that there's a lot of fraud happening on those gr- on the grant level on the recipient end for the developers. Developers are creating these project proposals, or they're building a little bit and creating a proposal for the future, and then they're receiving a grant and then sending that same proposal out to four or five other protocols doing the same thing. It, it seems to be a really big problem. Somewhere on the order of ninety percent of uh, grant applications are fraudulent, according to, uh, don't quote me on that, but that's that's roughly the number I've heard uh, from different folks who are in these in this position. Do you see the growth of developers, maybe through Covalent, that's pulling down the data and use, uh, utilizing it? Like, wh- where are we in terms of developer adoption or maybe end user adoption for the app or the dApps that developers are building? Do you feel like it's exploding or it's just kind of lukewarm? Um, yeah. Yeah, I try to understand that market a little more. This is a, a great question and something that we track very closely. So there, there are two questions here. One is general grants and the other is developer adoption. And we've dabbled in both. And one was one is definitely more successful than the other. So let's talk about the developer side of things. So the global developer market is about uh, 25 to 30 million developers. So those are the numbers that GitHub uh, publishes, for example. Those numbers are public. And the number of developers in the blockchain ecosystem, I would say, uh, you know, if you're very optimistic, it's at 150,000. So it's not even half a million. So it's a drop in the bucket in a global market. but this number has grown 10x in the last two years. So Covalent, for example, at the start of 2020, uh, we had maybe 25 devs total. That's it. It's a very small market. Uh, today, we have about 30,000 devs using Covalent. So in two years, we've grown dramatically. 
right? So these hackathons are very, very popular way to uh, source and get uh, awareness uh, to your protocol. So every hackathon that we sponsor, we see about 50 to 60 brand new, unique uh, projects that are submitted. So this is very, very encouraging. And what is also encouraging is that these foundations that are able to these, write these grants are in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So their entire purpose is to fund uh, developer hackathons and developer evangelism and outreach. So I think this number will only grow. So 150 is still a drop in the bucket. If you get to a million devs in the next two years, I think that would be a, a great success. And I think we'll, we will reach there as the, as blockchains become more and more mainstream. So that's one aspect. The second aspect, uh, which might be, uh, quite controversial, to be honest, is, uh, the DAOs and how effective are DAOs? I think that is the, the real question here. And, uh, I've never shared this, uh, before on any podcast or in a public forum. Uh, we did a small experiment with a social DAO. So we have a pretty large community at Covalent called the Alchemist community. So we train these guys how to do data analysis about the API, the token utility, uh, you know, just, just general, like good vibes. And so, uh, we at some point, uh, decided to build a social DAO as opposed to a protocol DAO. So the core Covalent protocol is also a DAO, right? So there we fund grants to build the core technology, the core uh, protocol. But a social DAO is like memes and, you know, all the fun stuff, right? All the social stuff. And uh, to be honest, that experiment was, uh, was a big failure. So what we found is that when uh, it, it attracts a lot of people who are in it just for the free money, and you can see this with every airdrop that's going out there. They just get dumped right away, right? So there's not a lot of loyalty and you have, uh, basically freeloaders. And so the people who are actually excited about the technology just come in and see it's just a really bad and toxic uh, culture in terms of, you know, people who want to build and people who will just want to hang out and get their free airdrops. So, uh, we phased that down and then repurposed our, our, uh, the, the DAO structure on the social side to something that's a little more structured. So not exactly a job. They still have ownership. It's still decentralized, but there's a pot of, uh, you know, these grants that is controlled by uh, the stewards and, uh, that structure has worked better for us. And you're now seeing that with other kinds of DAOs. So Gitcoin is another pretty popular project in the space. And they, uh, they pivoted to a DAO about a year ago. And if you see, there's a lot of drama. In the past, uh, past, I would say two months where the initial premise of the DAO was to convert the, the grant process to a decentralized grant process. That is the, the core engine, right? That's the, 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 the goose that lays the golden egg, the grant engine. That's where they're giving out like three, four, five million dollars in grants, which is amazing. It's a grants platform. But over the past six months, they've written out, you know, millions of dollars in grants. And zero dollars out of those grants have actually gone into building this core tech. So they've gone and funded lots of other projects. And, uh, those projects, you know, it's arguable if there's any ROI to Gitcoin itself. And so, uh, as a result of that, you know, uh, Gitcoin's, uh, token price has dropped. There's no revenue into the DAO. 
And so the actual stewards at Gitcoin uh, put their hand up and said, this is unsustainable. We are just funding all of these other projects. And as a result of that, we're funding, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars to create memes, right? And to do all other things that's not in line with the core mission, which is to make the DAO sustainable or some kind of like, you know, revenue source or, you know, some kind of, it's still an organization. There's still the PNL that needs to be managed. So that's kind of the drama that's going on. So I think there's a, a big moment of uh, reckoning uh, later this year, next year. And I think today there's, uh, again, don't quote me on this. A lot of this is controversial. Yeah. There's more money into DAO tools than actual DAOs. That's the, the funniest thing that, uh, you know, I've come to realize that there's a lot of excitement, but uh, nobody knows what product market fit looks like. Nobody knows what is sustainability. So, you know, when the, when the music is running, everyone is dancing. So when the music stops, what happens, right? So it's a, it's, mm. it's going to be very interesting, very interesting to watch and see what happens. Wait, can I ask you to explain a little bit more when you say that more money has gone into the DAO tools than the DAO themselves? Is that to say that in the case of, say, uh, Gitcoin, that there, there's a, maybe a, I wouldn't say a misallocation of funds, but an underinvestment in the core technology? Why wouldn't these DAOs invest in developers to build out the core technology? Why, why was there seemingly such an investment outward to other developers? It seems kind of like a obvious point when you make it. I, I think it's just, uh, what's the best word? Maybe bystander effect. So for every builder who wants to build on the core technology, there's 10 other people who just want to have fun. And so when you have 10 proposals that's on having fun and good vibes and one proposal on doing something that's right, then the guys who actually want to have fun control, it's decentralized, right? They would for funding their own pet projects. And so... It's uh, underinvested, right? Hmm. So is that just a? Is that just a? Is this? Are we learning collectively as a society that the decision making mechanism in a decentralized organization, maybe if it's like a strictly voting democracy, democratic voting process in these DAOs, that that doesn't lead to the best results? Yeah, I think uh, that's the big lesson. Still early to say if these things will uh, will pan out, uh, and that's why in in society we have politicians who are paid to make decisions. And arguable, you know, it's, it's questionable if they're qualified or not. You know, let's uh, let's not broach on that topic. But you know, there's a there's a, a career as a politician, and uh, you're trained uh, to make uh, choices that's in line with your values and it's best for society, right? It doesn't matter if you're uh, on the right or the left. That's really your job. Mm -hmm. And so here uh, we need a politician who cares about the mission of the DAO and is in it for the long term in, in some sense. And they need to be paid, uh, which is not exactly how things are happening right now. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Yeah. Yeah. I think of it less in terms of this is uh, more 
nuanced wording, but I think of it as a representative. A politician to me implies implies more of a traditional model of of debating where it's a rep it's a rep representatives a house of representatives the beautiful part about it is that you as a society we don't know what the right answer is and we also we also can't rely on any mechanism for establishing credibility among p- the people in society because who's going to determine that mechanism for credibility and so that's where i think the one vote per one person decision in the in the constitution makes a lot of sense and we contribute our thoughts, we influence other people, but at the end of the day, it's up to them to write whichever representative they believe is going to adhere to the values of me as an individual. And then I think there's there's really, I mean, it's the training that the representative claims they have. It's the beliefs that they have. It's, you know, that's where, that's one cool thing about politicians and representatives is they have all different backgrounds. Like there's people who are chefs and, uh, you know, sport athletes and bankers and whatever, how, lifelong politicians. And there's not necessarily a better way to do it. It's like, well, maybe we need different people at different times. But I do think there'll be a, an, a new layer that is added on top of, I don't know if you could add it on top of the existing DAOs, but going forward, maybe at least, where you have these uh, people who can be held accountable, they're voted in, uh, and they're incentivized to make the organization work it's like it's kind of i mean in many ways we're we're recreating the structure of corporations where there's a bunch of people working that they there's free flowing in and out of those people but who chooses who works for the company well it's it effectively flows from the top down but even the person leading the company is not the dictator of the company because there's a a board of directors who chooses whether that person is uh is fiduciary duty, whether they're acting on the best interests of the investors uh, or sorry, yeah, of the investors of the company. And so I, I wonder if this whole thing goes full circle where we end up recreating the structure that we currently have in the corporate world, but we create it in using a completely different technology stack. Yeah, no, it's an interesting question, right? So uh, why not just use a corporation? Like what's, uh, what's uniquely different about a DAO? And that's why it comes back to that question, DAO tools versus DAOs. It's very difficult to build tooling for something that does not have product market fit. And so DAOs today, uh, nobody even knows what uh, product market fit uh, looks like. You know, investment DAOs uh, kind of make sense because it's very clear. There are very clear metrics. You know, there's return on capital and your, uh, you know, your ROI, essentially. Or if you're, if you're funding like public uh, goods or a nonprofit, there's very clear ROI. But a general DAO, just for the sake of a DAO, uh, I'm not sure what product market fit looks like. And so if you're trying to build tooling for something that does not have product market fit, then what does your product market fit look like? So, uh, so I think that's, uh, an existential question that these DAO tools need to ask themselves. And do you see this as, uh, the decentralized autonomous organization? The DAO is, is effectively the government go- governance mechanism for deciding what protocols should do. So there's like a, you know, it's like Bitcoin has its, or any any uh, protocol has a, it has decisions it needs to make, right? Developers contribute to the project. Um, 
did you, is this how you think of the purpose of a DAO is to effectively maintain the integrity and the uh, product market fit of the protocol itself, as opposed to thinking of like, like, uh, when I think of the government, I don't think of the government, the government doesn't have a goal, other than to make the, the country in which it serves successful and success there's many different factors and those change over time. And, I, and it, to me, it feels very similar to protocols where you have the obvious high level metric, which is like GDP of a country or token price of a project. But then there's also a lot of nuances that lead into that high level OKR. I, is this how you see it or do you see it slightly differently? Absolutely. So that's how the covalent protocol DAO works, right? So we have this indexing solution. So everything from what are the governance parameters, what blockchain to index next, how to allocate the funds, everything goes collectively through the DAO. And the DAO guys are who show up to these things and actually participate. They run parts of the covalent infrastructure. So they have skin in the game. It directly impacts them. So it makes a lot of sense, and it's ultimately uh, best for all of the stakeholders, not just the commercial entity. So that's how our uh, the the covalent DAO works, and uh, I think so far it's been very effective, right? So people have uh, uh, there's a list of to dos, and different members go and tackle the different tasks. There are people who focus on marketing, and there are people who focus on documentation. There are people who focus on certain kinds of like problems with integration. And so it's, uh, it's really beautiful to see like these guys, we don't have a business relationship with them, right? They just fall in love with the mission of Covalent and go and buy some tokens so that they can participate. And then they scale up their involvement over many months, right? They start to run infrastructure. They start to write like pieces on, you know, the core technologies. They start to. Uh, send business towards the protocol because ultimately it, it benefits them, right? Yeah. And how do they, how are they getting paid or how are they getting, how does their pay change or are they at all? So there's staking income. So when you run parts of the infrastructure, the covalent uh, token, you get part of the query fees, part of the work that is done on the network. So that's how they get paid. Uh, but, but is that, would that be different than me, say I went out and I bought 50,000 worth of covalent and I staked it and I didn't do anything. Am I getting the same compensation benefits as someone who did the same thing as me, but spends all their days working on covalent? Yeah. So you would have to delegate your tokens against someone who's actually doing work. So that's how it works. And if you bought 50,000, yeah, you can't, uh, I mean, you can you can wait for you know price appreciation I guess but that's like it's there's no other value to this token and so you would signal one of the operators or one of the validators who runs the core infrastructure so they do their own marketing so we have about uh, about twelve uh, independent guys across the globe who are part of our protocol DAO and so you'd go and uh, delegate your tokens against one of these guys. And that's your relationship with the protocol through one of these guys. So I guess that's like a house of representatives, if you if you will. Hmm. When you say I delegate my tokens, that means I give it to them in exchange for non-custodial or, delegation in the right. sense that you're not giving up custody, so you can withdraw at any point that you want. But when you give it to them, they charge a commission fee of whatever, like 10%, for example. So whatever is taking rewards that they get, whatever work 
uh, rewards that they get for answering these queries or doing the indexing service, they take the commission fee and the rest flows back uh, to you as a delegatee. I see. So the incentive for the average investor is going to be put it where put it where the most productivity is happening. Put, put yeah, it, I mean, it, yeah. Different different validators have different values. That's the other thing, right? Mm-hmm. There's some people who care about only technology, and so they charge a very small commission fee. But you, as a token delegator, is like, okay, you're charging a small commission fee. How are you sustainable, right? Uh, it's not always for the maximum bang for the buck, right? At some point, we're all collectively uh, part of this. Uh, I guess like a co-op, right? It's like you know you care about this thing and you want to see this survive for the long term. So it's not about straight up profits and how big of a slice of the pie you can get personally. It's about collectively what's best for the DAO. So that's how our DAO works. It's very collaborative. These operators, these validators, they're not really competing with each other, but there's ample opportunity. Yeah. So uh, in practice, it looks like the validators are they would be, would they be running servers or when I, when it's, okay, so they're running a server, I'm staking it with their server. And then the deg- the rate of return I'm getting is different on the different validators. Yes. And the, the rate that I'm getting for staking, how is that determined? So there's two aspects here, right? So the amount of uh, essentially how much a uh, operator or a validator earns depends on how much work they, they perform. So if they show up to work every day, they get paid every day. If they don't show up on the weekends, they don't get paid on the weekends. It's as simple as that. And then they charge a commission fee and the rest flows back to the token delegate. So let's say this person, this operator gets paid $1,000 uh, collectively with their uh, token stake, including their self-stake and tokens that were delegated. Then that $1,000 gets uh, divided pro rata to themselves and all of the delegates. Mm. Um, uh, I, 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 just one last point to clarify this. So the, I understand the the payout structure. You know, if a developer's paid $1,000, they take a fee, it goes out to the people who staked. How is the method, the mechanism of tracking their contribution? Is it, I mean, I'm picturing, is it a, a track, is there somebody voting on the impact that they're having or are they clocking a timesheet or when you say they're working on the weekends they get paid for the weekends how does all on chain it's all on chain would they be clocking a on chain timesheet and saying i'm working now that's basically how it works so every time they perform work there's a signature that is submitted to it's essentially a proof that is submitted that they perform the work and then there's a consensus algorithm, essentially at the end of the day, which we call an epoch. What happens is we collect all the timesheets and then see who's done real work, who's faked their work, who didn't show up to the work. And then whatever the collective profits or whatever the protocol earns, that's divvied up to all of the guys who showed up and did real work. So and, as simple as that. And if somebody is assessing their work based on how many hours they put in, it's an algorithm. So that also runs on chain. Uh, wait, sorry. So I am clocking in, I press a button, I say I'm working now, eight hours later, I clock out, I'm, I'm typing in the things that I did during the time that I was working. And then the algorithm, the algorithm, it 
and it it checks the quality of your work and if you're actually showed up to work and not just that you submitted the timesheet that you showed up to work. So it, it runs that algorithm and then it deposits um, your pay into your wallet. So everything is autonomous on the contract. There's no no humans involved at all. How would it know? Like, how, how does it know? What if I clocked in, I'm sitting in my seat, I'm watching YouTube, uh, and then I submit a couple commits. Is The algorithm is counting the number of, like, lines of code or like how would it possibly know so there are many ways to uh to ensure the accuracy of your work so here we have essentially a proof that is submitted and you can only come up with a proof if you did the work for example you indexed a block or you answered a a search query and so here what would happen is uh if you have three people who do the same work then you can just do best of two so two people, either they're colluding or, you know, they're all fake or uh, you would have a set of rules. So let's say three people submit a proof oh, and okay. two of them match and one doesn't match. Then it's likely that either the two guys are faking their work and colluding or the third person is uh, is faking their work. Is this go through a flow chart? Is when you say the work that they're doing, and sorry, we're going a couple minutes over. Uh, is the work that they're doing um, like creative uh, developer work, or is it more like solving uh, um, mining ch- challenges or some sort of more standardized, commoditized work where an algorithm can measure it? It's standardized, commoditized work. It's indexing and search. So gotcha. there's nothing. Nothing. Uh, so that's the covalent protocol, right? So we're an indexing solution. So if there's a query that comes in, then you need to answer and fulfill that query using an answer. So that's the work. Mm. And this exact same answer, there's no nobody's opinion on how this answer should look like. It's standardized. So therefore, you can form out this question to, let's say, three people and get all of the answers and the uh, associated proof, and then you can find out if the answer is correct or not. Interesting. Oh, this is super unique. It's it, it, it's the more I ask you about it, the more I appreciate the uniqueness of what you're doing versus when I think of a validator or a miner, I'm thinking of a machine who's just running running algorithm, running uh, scripts to solve a complex problem to release a block. But this is this is different. This is people. Maybe an analyst would have a specific question. They're submitting it. And then the person receives it. Okay, let me go figure this out. And then they submit the answer. And then they just keep doing that. It's it's the former. So the analyst uh, asks the question to covalent the API. Mm-hmm. And the API answers this question. And the answer comes from one of the validators. Right. So right. it is standardized in that sense. It's, it's actually very similar to a proof of stake system. Right. Right. So there's nothing unique. Uh, there's nothing bespoke or there's no unique snowflakes in this answer. It's all standardized. Okay. So is there people doing work or is it machines doing work? When people are, you said there are clashings. Okay. So when they're clocked in on the weekend, it's a server. It's a, it, they're just letting the server. server. Oh my God. All right. I'm so, <laughs> I, was, I was just, I, it's probably the worst analogy to use there, but yeah. So I was just giving a, I was thinking of a, of a factory floor where people clock in and clock out. 
But here, these are servers. These are machines that are clocking in and clocking out every every block. Yeah. So that's... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes way more sense. I was somehow picturing like, okay, you're receiving requests to say, an analyst submits a request to say, you know, what's the most, what's the busiest blockchain out of these for the last six days? And a guy's uh, running a script and figuring it out and punching in a time card and submitting it. But that is completely wrong. And it's completely automated and servers running. Thank you for entertaining me. I appreciate you going down that rabbit hole. And <laughs> uh, Ganesh, are you publicly writing? Are you on Twitter? Anything you want to throw out there personally? And I'm sure we'll include all the links for Covalent uh, in the show notes. Yeah, so I'm not super active on Twitter. I should be, and uh, I will be. That's uh, that's uh, a promise to my marketing, uh, head of marketing who has been uh, urging me to be more active on Twitter. Uh, but I am G-A-N-E-5-H on Twitter. And my DMs are open, so you can always message me. I usually respond to every DM. And lots of great stuff happens through open DMs. So uh, DM me if you have any questions about data, about uh, Covalent, uh, about events we're going to. So we go to a lot of events. Currently, my team is at Consensus down in Austin. I hear it's 100, 100 degrees down there. Uh, while the rest of us are in like cold, yeah, uh, rainy yeah. season here. Um, and the website is covalenthq.com. So check that out. And we have the API. API is very popular. You can build all kinds of really, really beautiful products. Uh, we have the decentralized network, which, uh, you can be, uh, you can, you can delegate your tokens and in the future will open up, uh, anyone to run parts of the covalent network. Uh, and then, yeah, that's uh, join our community. Yeah. We have lots of hackathons happening every year, every month. We do four to five hackathons every month. Uh, Covalent is a uh, is a product of hackathons, so we love hackathons. Are they remote or are they in person? They're all remote. Uh, okay. They're th- it's a mix. So we're doing ETH New York uh, in two weeks, and that's a uh, that's in New York. Uh, but other we did uh, we just finished this, uh, a Clayton hackathon. We finished a Chainlink hackathon. Those were remote. That's cool. Cool. Awesome, man. Well, I didn't get to ask you about Mount Everest and I would love to hear that story someday. So maybe we'll save that for next time, but congrats on all the progress. It's yeah, it's actually connected to crypto, but we'll save that for Ooh. the next, uh, next time. Interesting. Yeah. That is a cliffhanger. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Ganesh, have a great day. Congrats on everything. And we'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.